Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 2nd of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed in Belfast in April of 1998. From 1995... Through 1999, I had the privilege of serving in Northern Ireland. I'm often asked, what about those years is most important to me? My answer is in the following numbers. Between 1968 and 1998 in Northern Ireland, during what have come to be known as the Troubles, about 3,500 people were killed and an estimated 50,000 were injured. Between 1998 and the present, there were about 160 security-related deaths. And I believe that latter figure includes the 30 people killed in a single tragic bombing in Omaha in August of 1998. That's the former American Senator George Mitchell. He was speaking at a meeting of the Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement in October when he reflected on the change in the lives of people in Northern Ireland a quarter of a century on. For anyone under 25, it, it all happened before they were born. But we have to keep reminding ourselves and them of what is at stake, what is at risk, and, and encourage them as best we can to reach agreement. But there isn't any magic formula that I or any external person or force can suggest or impose on them. It must come from within, from the courage and strength and vision of the current political leaders of Northern Ireland especially, but also of Ireland and the United Kingdom. 
George Mitchell, one of the 17 architects of uh, the Good Friday Agreement that uh, appeared before the Oireachtas Committee that spent the bones of a year, over 14 meetings, listening to those who came together and made history on this island with uh, the signing of uh, the Belfast uh, Agreement in April of 1998. That committee subsequently uh, published its report following on from it its hearings and yesterday put a motion to the doll asking that we learn lessons from the architects of the Good Friday Agreement. The motion was put to the doll by the chairman of the committee that's Fergus O'Dowd Finnegale TD for Louth and East Meath who joins us now and a very good morning to you Fergus O'Dowd and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Indeed when you addressed the doll yesterday you chose to quote George Mitchell. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I think that George was the key player in, he, like as he said, he spent a number of years working with all parties. And at the end of the day, I think uh, we learned that he fixed a date for Good Friday because he was going back to his family the following day. And that was it. So there was an all night sitting, and eventually everybody signed up. And one of the last to sign up was David Trimble. And, um, you know, that was, wasn't entirely expected when it did happen. And he made a leap of faith, obviously, as did everybody else who signed that agreement. And that's why we have had peace, you know, for, for so long. One of the key lessons, Michael, that we learned from everybody was that it was only when the Irish prime minister and government and the English prime minister and government were at the same page and working hand in hand that things work best for everybody. <clears throat> and I think that's been absolutely clear since. Obviously, we've had other prime ministers, and obviously there's been a rocky road with Brexit and so on. And hopefully now that, that with, with the new British prime minister, uh, you know, relationships are definitely improving. That's very welcome. So the key lesson is the two governments must work very closely together, find things they can agree on, help and assist and support. And I know the... Um, the Taoiseach's comment last night that <clears throat> when when Stormont returns, and hopefully it will, that the Southern Government will make a significant contribution, uh, you know, to the budget up there to ensure, you know, that we play our part in, in ensuring that Stormont gets up and running and that we are, want to play our part in that in terms of support. We already have uh, money going up there, you know, in, in, in terms of Department of Foreign Affairs, you know, the Narrow Water Bridge, DA5 and things like that, um, what they call the Shared Island Unit. So there's lots of good things yeah. will happen if we can get unionism uh, to work with nationalism again. Yeah, well, as George Mitchell said, if you're 125, you may not realise how good things are, but, uh, I mean, it is a fantastic world that we live in on this island relative to the one that existed 25 years ago before 1998. Having said that, uh, lessons still need to be learned. That's the message from your committee. That was uh, the thrust, I suppose, of uh, the motion that you put to the doll yesterday. Uh, and you said that the promise of the Good Friday Agreement has not yet been fulfilled. How so? Because, Michael, Stormont has been sitting, you know, for over a year now. Uh, it's, I think, about four times since the Good Friday Agreement has been out of operation with one side or the other refusing to work uh, with, the, with the political situation as they saw it. 
uh, one key issue is that the north-south bodies, and that's the meetings between ministers north and south of the border, <coughs> have not been happening because there's no ministers up there. Uh, and then the problem was with uh, with Johnson and other other British Prime Ministers, the East-West relationship uh, disimproved between Britain and Ireland. So all of that is getting back together now. As I said, Sunak, excuse me, is 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 a much more, I think, approachable prime minister from the Irish perspective, and the, the you know the two the two governments and there are serious differences still, obviously in relation to the legacy bill in the House of Lords, um, but there's a lot greater cooperation there. So there's a lot of good things. So if we get the north south bodies up and running, get Stormont up and running, get the east west relationships improving, which they are. You know, we can go back to the next stage of of what's going to happen on the whole island. Okay, uh, and in the same vein, because the politicians aren't at work, you say that we've achieved peace, but not reconciliation, and the threat of violence uh, continues to simmer under the surface. It does, and obviously, to see. A police officer, uh, a very serious attempt on his life was made there, Inspector Caldwell, recently. Thankfully, he's recovering well. Uh, and it's it's always there, Michael. We always know that in a vacuum, and if politics doesn't work, well, then, you know, the criminality gets involved. The, you know, the, the people in the shadows, they they move forward. And, they're you know, the, the, the drug dealers, the barns, they carve out their territory, as you know. Uh, particularly in, in intensive urban areas in our cities, not just, you know, it, it, it happens everywhere. Uh, so so there is a serious risk if we can't get back together. But I'm hopeful, if I can read what Jeffrey Donaldson seems to be saying, subsequent to the election there recently, that, you know, that he is references, referencing Stormont. But I think... Um, Mr. Paisley is talking about it won't be an, it's like an ice age will pass before they'll go back in there. But you know, so there there are serious problems and the more they don't work together, the more the agenda for you know, for significant change uh, you know uh, well, gets, gets I, I, I don't know if you agree, but it, it looks uh, to some extent uh, that they've decided to go back. It's just a question of negotiating how much they can get uh, in order yes, to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that, Michael, certainly, yeah. All right. Um, and let's hope that that is uh, the case because it is the most fundamental part of the Good Friday Agreement which delivered peace uh, to this island and that is power sharing and that uh, the people of Northern Ireland have uh, a say in their own destiny. There, There is self-determination which is lacking without uh, the political establishment, establishments in place uh, and that should be the promise of the Good Friday Agreement which has not yet been fulfilled uh, as you say but there is more to it. And you made a significant statement, I think, in the Dáil last night as the chair of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement and sent a message to Westminster. You said that the legacy bill is an impediment to reconciliation and it should be abandoned. Absolutely. The legacy bill has gone through the House of Commons and is now in the House of Lords. And we've, we've met with Lord Kane, who is the person who's bringing the bill to the House of Lords. We've met him on a number of occasions. And we're going to Westminster the week after next, actually, to meet him again and his officials. But the issue is that at the moment, uh, the expectation is that if you're a victim, if this bill goes through, that your rights will not be 
uh, will not be met, and that people who may have murdered your 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 your, your family member uh, will not face the justice that they should face, and that uh, the increase into debt. Which haven't been carried out, uh, you know. Obviously, many of these increases have been delayed for years and years. They may never be carried out, and people on all sides, as Catholics and Protestants and so on, who have had family members murdered, all of them say that this bill cannot give absolution, uh, you know, to, war, to to people who murdered their loved ones. And they're talking about, in many cases, uh, soldiers. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, people who are in the IRA and so on. So if the bill goes through, it'll apply to everybody, uh, you know, and uh, it weakens it weakens the authority, you know, of, of the Good Friday Agreement if it's going to let people, you know, who committed foul and even murders, uh, you know, not be held accountable. Now, there's no question mm. of people uh, being, you know, being gone to jail for long periods of time because of the Good Friday Agreement. But the issue is that the the justice that they're entitled to get the truth. You see, they need to know to who, the what, where, the why uh, to get closure. And and they haven't got that and they're not going to get it unless this bill changes. Now, we met Lord Kane and he said that he was uh, looking at new amendments. I know that he met with uh, government ministers and I know that he met with senior civil servants in the Department of Foreign Affairs recently as well. So he's talking about introducing, uh, it'll be the week after next that that bill will be going through Parliament again in the UK. Uh, so we haven't seen what those amendments are, uh, so we await them. But clearly mm-hmm. the bill is divisive, it's unacceptable. The Unionists and the Nationalists, um, mm. and people who are neither, they're all opposed to it. And, and it basically seem to be you know, looking after people who wore uniforms and killed, you know. And, and did you get the impression from Lord Kane when you were speaking to him that he understood how Northern Ireland is united? Um, a, a really unusual position in our lifetimes. For once, Northern Ireland is united against this legislation, completely opposed, uh, whether they're Republicans or Unionists, all sides, as you say, oppose this legislation, that Westminster is working against a united Northern Ireland, if you like. Yes, and I think the, he does understand that. He says himself that he personally, you know, it is a difficult bill for him. Now, that's what he says, but he hasn't changed it. Uh, and Like, he's a very personal person, and, and he's, he, do, he does understand issues. But I think the key momentum for the bill seems to be uh, people in the Conservative Party who live in places nearer London than, than Belfast, obviously, who would have significant... Uh, military uh, establishments in their constituencies and also the influence on the in the Tory party generally of people who would have been in the military and would have had military careers and backing and so on. So it seems to be to satisfy their needs as they see them. Um, and, you know, there was, there was a funeral not so long ago of somebody who was accused of a very serious crime of murder you might remember it there, Michael, and uh, he was brought before the Belfast courts uh, under a due process, and then he, he was an elderly man, and he actually passed away. But they were, they was his funeral was applauded by by hundreds, if not thousands, in the UK, and that's the strength of feeling in some constituencies. Uh, that, con- that Conservatives that hold, was, and I think that that's that's part of the reason. That was one of the bloody Sunday Paris, wasn't it? 
It was, yes, it was. It yeah. was, yes, it okay. was indeed, Michael, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, it's been a mammoth job of work uh, that your committee has carried out for almost a, a year, concluding yesterday, I think, with uh, that motion that went to the Dáil following on from your report. Uh, you spoke to most of the architects of uh, the Good Friday Agreement who are still with us, of course. Many have passed away, uh, and I, I think uh, the transcripts of your meetings will be plenty of food for fodder for um, history students over the years ahead. Uh, And um, you look at the Good Friday Agreement as something that has been successful up to a a point. Uh, I mean, you did make the point earlier on that it hasn't fully fulfilled its promise because uh, of how power sharing has broken down. But it certainly has been successful in that the killing uh, uh, and the bombing and all of that has stopped for the most part. Uh, But you also made the point that uh, to some degree it's been a victim of its own success and that we can't take the Good Friday Agreement for granted nor peace for granted for that matter. Absolutely Michael and you're absolutely right I mean everybody says yeah the Good Friday Agreement that's it, it's done and dusted but it, it isn't, it, it, it's a work in progress and obviously in the Good Friday Agreement is the next phase of our island's politics really and it'll get it'll get very controversial and, and uh you know, I suppose from a political point of view, uh, you know, we have to really prepare for it. Our next stage in our committee is to look at the future and what might a future island look like. Will it be a united Ireland? Will it be, you know, power sharing in, in Belfast under an Irish government? Will it be direct rule? What will it be? So, you know, the, the future the future is ahead of us. And obviously issues around education, uh, you know, people being reared in different, going to different schools because of based on their religion, the issue of transport north south, the issue of, you know, of, of of energy policy, you know, of developing the Belfast Dublin corridor, which is really flying right now. So there's just huge issues ahead, and we're looking into all of those, as are a lot of professors and academics and so on. And obviously, if there is a border poll, if there is, and the Good Friday Agreement says, uh, you know, when the British um, uh, Secretary of State decides uh, that there is a, a majority for such a poll, or it might succeed or will succeed, then there has to be one. So I believe there will be a border mm. poll in the future. There's no doubt about that. And we have to prepare for it. What sort of Ireland do we all want? How can we, and the most important point, uh, the most significant issue is how can we bring unionists on board? I believe in the United Ireland. What what future Ireland relationship can we have that, that would bring us closer together and at the same time recognise absolutely the right of unionists uh, to be British uh, in, in that future and, to, and that yeah. they feel I think some people say that it's a warm place for unionism. In other words, you know that you know that we respect and you know involve them and make sure that they have power in a new island relationship. Uh, so I'm picking my words sort of carefully there, but but we have to have things are going to change. You know, we must lead that change. We must show how we are preparing, yeah. you know, how we ensure... The, 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 the way your committee uh, went about it, its hearings uh, may have been an example of the scale of uh, that challenge. Uh, you told it all yesterday that there's 18 
uh, MPs elected in Northern Ireland. Six of th- they're all entitled to attend your uh, meetings, uh, and six of them didn't. And of course, uh, they were uh, the unionists. But, okay. but, but, but look at it this way: every Thursday at half one, you can tune in to RT, not RT, sorry, into the Rockless uh, channels, and you'll find you know people from. In, you know, from the SDLP, from the Alliance Party, from Sinn Féin, from Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Labour, every party, all talking together, uh, with in, trying to get a consensus. So, like, and that is the only way that involves British parliamentarians elected from the north in 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 our in our democracy down here. So, we're trying to build up those relationships, and they are working. Mm. You know, we, we get on well with each other, but we need to engage unionism, and they don't come in the door. And that's the problem. All right, we have to leave it there. Thank you very Thank much you indeed. Thanks, Thanks very much for having us uh, today. That's uh, Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael, TD for Louth and East Mead. He's also the chair of the Roxas Committee for the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. This morning, the Environmental Protection Agency is publishing its uh, projections uh, for greenhouse gas emissions uh, from now up to 2040. And uh, the projections are not good. Let's speak to Stephen Tracy, Senior Scientific Officer in the Emissions Statistics Team with the EPA. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed. The overall target is to cut emissions by 51%. You're saying, uh, in the best case scenario, we're going to do it by 29%. Yes, that's correct, uh, Michael. Yeah, We're projecting that we'll achieve a reduction of 29%. Uh, in the additional measures scenario, which includes uh, the majority of the measures that would be in the 2023 Climate Action Plan. Um, in the implemented scenario, which just looks at what's already been implemented, we're, we're closer to 11% reduction by 2030. Okay, uh, so uh, in theory, uh, if we were to do all the things that we say that we will do, uh, if uh, we reach the targets, it'll be 29%, but if we continue on the path that we are, it'll only be 11%, is that right? Yeah, so there's a, there's a number of messages in this report, um, and we really need to fully implement the actions in the climate action plan that we've seen already. That's the that's the first priority. Mm. Uh, obviously, we also need to firm up on actions that we don't currently have policies and measures for, like diversification and agriculture being one. But they also need to identify and implement further policies and measures. That's what the 29% to to 51% gap is is saying. Okay, uh, and every sector needs to do better. Uh, residential buildings uh, uh, appear to be. Uh, the best of all, but all other sectors, agriculture, electricity, transport and industries are underperforming. Well, that's in relation to the planning. I, I see every sector really needs, and not, I wouldn't exclude residential either, because what we're saying is it's, it's projected to achieve that if the plans are implemented. Uh, but there's a really, really tough, uh, challenging um, policies in, in there to be to be implemented, like 680,000 heat pumps by 2030. So it really does apply to all sectors, the message we're putting out today. Okay. Um, <laughs> That uh, sounds as though there isn't a hope. Not at all. I mean, I think we've got it. What we've seen is there are measures identified that get us almost to 30%. If we implement them, it's really about getting on and doing it. That's what we're saying. It's not a. It's not that there's no hope. I mean, we're in a, we're in a process now of annual climate action plans, which will look at what's 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 on the on the table each year mm. and update as necessary. But really, we're saying uh, we need to implement what we know uh, and then come up with more as needed. Okay. And what does that mean uh, when you talk about getting on with it? Does it mean, for example, that in agriculture you stop talking to farmers about diversification and you start taking concrete action like cutting the national herd? 
It's not specifically about that. It's, it's across all sectors. We've got measures in there for very high levels, for example, in transport uh, of electric vehicle deployment, of reduced vehicle kilometres. In, in energy, we've got very high targets for for um, you know solar and offshore and onshore wind uh, build out, and then in the agriculture sector, yes, we have we've measures in there. Even without talking about the, the herd, we've got measures there around uh, new feed, ad- feed additives being used, which will make a substantial reduction. We've got fertilizer use measures in there as well. These just need to be implemented now, uh, and that's really the key message. It's not about specifically one message or another. Mm, uh, it would uh, be argued by some uh, that the targets for agriculture are far too low anyway. Well, I mean, I think it's, it is a slightly different sector in some ways in terms of how the IPCC sees it. So if we look at the, the, the IPCC guidelines, there's not an expectation that all agriculture emissions will ultimately disappear. That's not, that's not what's expected because, you know, food production persists. Um, but what we are seeing is that uh, for fossil fuels and, and in energy and transport that we are expecting those emissions ultimately will have to go away completely. Uh, so there are different targets. There are lower targets for agriculture compared to energy, for example, which is a 75% reduction by 2030. And ultimately, all fossil fuel emissions from energy will have to go away. Is uh, the technology uh, sufficiently advanced uh, to reach that target of 940,000 electric vehicles by 2030? Uh, as things stand, a lot of people won't buy them because of all of the problems of charging them and uh, finding somewhere to charge them and how long the battery lasts and all of that. Well, there's, there's an anticipated uptake rate uh, based on vehicle sales, and that's what's in our projections. And actually what we're seeing right now is that the, the number of the sales in 2022, for example, were slightly ahead of that uptake rate. So they are being purchased and they are going on the road. Um, it's a long way to go, absolutely. Uh, you know, nearly a million by, by 2030. But we're not, we're not saying and we're not seeing that it's impossible. Mm, yeah, it looks like a huge challenge if you're not saying it's impossible. Uh, you talk about fossil fuel uh, and uh, I'm sure you're concerned about the way people heat their homes uh, but a lot of people uh, feel that retrofits either don't suit them or they're too expensive. Well, I mean, it, it is, It is. I mean, as we're saying here, the sectoral ceiling for residential can be met according to the measures that have been identified, but they are very challenging measures and we, we are talking about a lot of a lot of retrofits here, and, and as I said earlier, you know, it's 680,000 uh, heat pumps. Uh, so they're, they're, they, they are require a huge amount of infrastructure, a huge amount of training. Mm. And, but it is starting and it is, it is, uh, a lot of this has been implemented because we do see that in the implemented scenario as well. Mm. The existing measures that there are very high reductions anticipated already from what's been implemented. Okay, but do we need a, a different model uh, uh, if people are going to get on board? I mean, there's an awful lot of people uh, who are living in houses uh, that are using fossil fuels um, to heat uh, and they've no intention of changing that. Well, I think it is. It's, there's a there's a, there'll be a lot of incentive to do so over time. You know, as certainly it will result in a more comfortable, more cheaper to fuel home ultimately. And you know, energy prices are are likely to be to remain at a relatively high level in the future. So I think it is it is something that will be positive both from a um, you know a climate perspective, but also from an individual comfort perspective for householders. And we are seeing a lot of interest in it. I mean, I suppose the challenge here now is for the SEI and the other actors in the sector to be able to 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 meet the demand and and get the get the, um, the retrofits in place. Mm-hmm.
Mm. Uh, if we're at 11 percent, if uh, there is a cut of 11 percent in emissions uh, by 2031, uh, we're obviously way below that target of 51 percent. What, what, what needs to be done in the short term, do you think, uh, to improve on that? Well, I think all the measures have been identified, really, you know, they're all in there in the plan and it's, it's just about getting them in place, you know, so what, what, mm. what the implemented scenario requires is, is you know, to see that there are um, uh, boots on the ground, if you like, whether that's uh, legislation in place or whether that's, um, uh, if needed, depending on the measure or whether it's, uh, it's, it's financial resources in the departments and agencies that build it out or the organisations that have to do it. So it, it's, it's about seeing those things. That's how we know that something is, 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 has a higher certainty of happening from our perspective. But really, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the measures themselves have been well identified, you know. Mm. Um, and, but the, and but the measures identified, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying would only bring us to 29%, would they not? Yeah, I know that's very much a good starting point, you know. Um, and as I say, the next iteration of the Climate Action Plan, the job for that would be to come up with more again. But uh, I think the, the the primary focus now is really getting that 29% of those measures in place so that we can we can build on that. By 2030. So, yeah. So, so that sounds like the target of 51% is in fact hopeless. No, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, we're in a process now where we have annual climate action plan updates, and this is the job of government to update that with new measures as needed. And that's what we'd anticipate will happen with the next iteration. Okay. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning uh, and outlining the scale of uh, that challenge. That's Stephen Tracy, Senior Scientific Officer in the Emissions Statistics Team with uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's been a somewhat muted response uh, to the Taoiseach uh, saying yesterday that Ireland is considering joining NATO, or at least uh, NATO partnership uh, to protect undersea communications cables, or uh, a European PESCO type of a partnership. Uh, but uh, why uh, this needs to be done? Uh, well, the Taoiseach said uh, there's a, a threat to these cables. What is that threat? Uh, the Taoiseach said he couldn't tell us. He couldn't discuss matters of national security. Uh, it is uh, very curious. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West on the line. Paul Murphy, good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I'm sure you're curious, are you? I am, exactly. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I think we know from the experience of the war in Iraq and dodgy dossiers how uh, threats can be exaggerated or entirely manufactured to get an outcome that governments want to get to try and shape public opinion. And I think we should be extremely suspicious about this talk of threats because it happens in the context when it's clear that the government is trying to erode what is left of neutrality. Almost every week, they're announcing participation in some sort of new militarization scheme, getting closer to NATO. We've got these consultative forums going on, mm. which are really already up. And now, oh, oh, we have this particular threat here, which is likely to require us to be involved in some sort of NATO or European militarization mm. um, exercise. Do you know so what's I, really I disturbing we as well? Uh, when we joined PESCO, uh, there were a lot of people asking, is this the first step towards joining a European army? Don't be silly, we were told. We're never going to join a European army. Now we're talking about uh, some sort of military uh, alliance with Europe through PESCO or NATO, as the case may be, to defend these undersea cables. And now we're being told, 
but you were already members of PESCO. Yeah, exactly. And this is, like, I, I think they are quite consciously using the kind of boiling the frog alive technique, where you boil the frog so slowly that the frog doesn't realise they're being boiled until they're dead. I think that's what they're attempting to do with our neutrality, bit by bit by bit. And um, they'll keep saying, oh, no, sure, we're, we're, we, neutrality is important. We wouldn't get rid of neutrality. But in reality, they, they just chip away and chip away at this. I mean, you, you look at the triple lock. That was, that was a nice treaty. And in the context of concerns about European militarization, they said, well, we'll give this guarantee. We'll have the triple lock. Nothing. We won't participate in any military exercise without the agreement of the, um, a, a UN resolution, be it Security Council or General Assembly level, um, along with government and all approval. That is clearly on, on the chopping block uh, now. Um, as is the idea that we weren't going to participate in more widespread um, European militarization uh, projects, as is the idea that we weren't going to be getting closer and closer uh, to NATO. This isn't one big bang where they announce in the morning we're going to join NATO. In reality, they have to repair the military, have to increase military spending by a lot before we'd be considered uh, for joining NATO. But I think that's definitely, unfortunately, the the direction of travel they want to take us. And joining a NATO pact could very well be the first step towards that. But we have to do this. I I read it in the Irish Independent today, Mm -hmm. um, the editorial of uh, the Irish editorial of the Irish Independent is telling us uh, that the Russians are going to blow up these cables or do something like this and that we can not guard ourselves against such attacks and all we can do until Russia is held accountable for all the terrible things it's doing in the world is to contain the consequences and shield ourselves against the aggression. We really don't have any option here. Yeah, that's exactly. I thought that was quite a striking editorial in the Irish Independent uh, today. Um, one of the funny things is that all this discussion uh, avoids mention of, or mostly avoids mention, of the undersea infrastructure that we have seen destroyed in recent times, which was the blowing up of the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. Um, and the reason for that is that uh, it's not definitive, but I think there's quite a lot of evidence pointing towards the fact that the most likely party responsible for the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline was not Russia, but in fact was the U.S. And so the idea that we're going to be joining an alliance led by the U.S. in order to defend our underseas infrastructure doesn't really hold any credibility, given that they were quite likely behind the blowing up of the only underseas uh, European infrastructure that we've seen in in the recent uh, period of of time. Right. And do we trust them? There's an American boat... I'm sure it's more than a boat, as people would understand a boat, uh, some big military uh, machine uh, in Irish waters, the Virginia Anne, uh, which has been in Irish waters for four months. Its transmitter turned off and nobody seems to know what it's doing. Yeah. And and I think, like, you know, again, to be clear, look, I, I you know, the Russian Putin regime is a horrible uh, regime. One shouldn't trust their intentions on, on anything, right? But, we should remember, probably six months ago now, there was Russian boats in our uh, European, uh, in our EEZ, right, which is not territory that we, like, legally, military ships from other countries do have the right to be there. Sometimes that's kind of the difference between the EEZ and our, and our waters is kind of elided. And that's the Irish exclusive, Irish eco- waters. And that's the Irish exclusive economic zone. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But a, but a huge big deal was made of it. It was made, you know, suggesting that these people were very threatening or whatever. Ultimately, 
uh, fishers went out to um, to meet them and to kind of push them off fair, fair play to the, the fishers um, but there are very very regularly NATO boats in the Irish EZ that isn't unusual um, and in this case you have one with their transponder turned off etc and like we're not going to hear the same um, kind of panic about what this is doing that they're a threat to our underseas infrastructure are they going to attack us something like that you know and, and I think that's all part of the kind of information war propaganda war that we're seeing try and convince people that we need to join one of the two big blocks in the, the world at the moment, obviously the, the US-led uh, NATO bloc. And I think we should really be resisting that kind of propaganda. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, the conversation on neutrality uh, will continue through this month uh, with uh, this uh, forum that the government has established. Uh, three, four meetings to be held over the course of uh, the month, towards the end of uh, the month. Uh, but as I say, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us. That's People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West. Paul Murphy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you're hoping uh, to buy a house, are you planning holidays uh, this year? Doing anything different? Well, it seems almost half of uh, prospective home buyers are looking at how they spend their holidays uh, differently than they would otherwise because of uh, the cost of living. This is according to a survey by myhome.ie. Joanne Geary is uh, the managing director of myhome.ie and a very good morning to you, Joanne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. People are looking for better value for money uh, and for many people that means leaving the country. Yes, morning, Michael. Um, We did the survey on my home back in early May and we surveyed over uh, 2,000 people on the site. And you might wonder, why is my home particularly interested in how people are going to holiday? We're interested because we carry a lot of advertised properties uh, in the holiday home market, both at home and abroad. So we wanted to find out, was there changes to people's behaviour this year? And two thirds of the respondents to that survey told us that they thought that uh, holidaying abroad was going to represent better value for money for them this year. That was quite a high number. And also within that survey of the of the third that told us that they were going to stay in Ireland, 46% of the respondents told us that they would rather stay in a holiday home than stay in a hotel. Oh, why is that? And the cost of living crisis, Michael, was what was coming up in both of those answers, whether people were choosing to go abroad or to choose a holiday home, um, having a significant impact on how people are making decisions and how they spend their money. And hotels have just got too expensive. And scarce, and rooms are scarce also. So I think you can certainly see, you know, there is an issue in this for the hospitality industry. You know, we've also been reading and hearing about, you know, the volume of people going through the airport and parking issues in the last uh, week or two. So clearly, I think what's happening here is people are voting with their wallets. They're looking for value for money. They're doing the research and they're either choosing to go abroad and if they're staying in Ireland, they're choosing a holiday home over a hotel. I'd have thought a ludicrous position where parking at the airport would have put people off going abroad. Yes, but I think they're still factoring in, the, you know, the cost of accommodation abroad, the flight, the baggage, the parking, and they're mm. still coming to the conclusion that they believe that it is better value still to travel abroad. And you hear lots of anecdotal evidence of that when people go researching prices. Mm. You, you do, and it's not just uh, the cost of the accommodation. Uh, it's when you add everything in, including the flights, uh, it's hard to believe that it can be cheaper to go abroad. 
Yes, it is. But, you know, there is still very good value for money here still, you know, and, and the good news for people, you know, and I was doing research um, for your show, you know, on my home, we still have over 2,600 holiday home listings available to rent in Ireland this summer. So there is, and you know, a variety of stock and a variety of value there in lots of different counties. But we also have almost 22,000 uh, holiday home listings abroad all across the globe on the site. So, you know, there's plenty of choice there. I think people are certainly saying to us that they're prepared to put the legwork in, they're prepared to do the research if they feel that's going to make a, a difference to their cost savings. Mm, I suppose uh, for years we've been hearing people dying to get abroad to get a, a bit of weather. Uh, that's kind of turned on its head uh, the last couple of years. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, I think Board Falcher are going to start a, a campaign to encourage people to come here because it, it'll be lovely weather, but slightly uh, cooler than it would be in some of uh, these countries. Uh, people could be going abroad to very, very hot weather. That's a, a, another problem that people face into. Yes, I mean, I think people, you know, when we were in COVID, we couldn't travel anywhere, right? So we were spending our holiday time here in Ireland and then we were coming out of COVID and that, you know, led to a bit of a travel boom. I think what's happening this year is slightly different. And we can certainly see that from the survey. People are choosing to go abroad, yes, for the weather, you know, and the guaranteed weather. But they're telling us clearly in the survey, over 2,000 people, that they're choosing to go abroad because of the cost of living difference Mm. and Uh, the price involved. And is it just the accommodation? um, I mean, are people taking into account uh, when uh, they go to eat uh, the cost of food, the cost of drink uh, and other incidentals? Yes, they are. I mean, it is not just the accommodation. I think people factor in all those additional costs that they're going to have. You know, it was interesting, probably for one of the first times, you know, since we've been doing the survey, that holiday homes have been coming out as the favourite choice as well. And again, people were saying to us in the survey that the reason they would favour a holiday home, and it, that was, you know, it was the same answer whether they were abroad or, or in Ireland, um, was because, look, you know, I'm travelling with a family or I'm travelling with a group. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I'd like to save some money, stay in and cook in maybe um, a couple of nights during my week or 10 days. And, you know, they were actively calling that out as being a reason that they wanted to save money, but also, you know, enjoy a bit Mm. of a break, but being a bit more careful about how they spend it. Right. And are are they approaching foreign holidays in the same way? I think they are. Yeah. Yeah. Holiday Mm. homes generally was coming out as um, an optimal favourite there for people. You know, obviously, people shop around and they get deals and all-inclusives and various different kind of package holidays. But clearly, you can see that the research is being done because we saw in the first five months of this year in my home, we saw almost a 40% increase in searches for holiday homes on the site. Right. So that's telling me there is a strong demand there for that type of listing. Yeah, well, 40% more, obviously. Uh, and uh, it's uh, probably no great surprise, but Kerry, Galway and Donegal are the preferred destinations here. 
They are, um, but and there's lots of really you know interesting stock in those areas. But you know, I looked at um, uh, properties closer to home, you know, up in in Mead and and a couple of different areas for you. And I felt there was really good value actually in uh, your part of the world as well, Michael. Um, I pulled a property on the site this morning, a really romantic looking gate lodge cottage property in Fordstown in Navan mm. that's coming in at, and still available at €630 Euro for a week there during the summer. A small cottage, it's a one bed, but it would be uh, beautiful for um, a family. Also looking at Carlingford, a really um, popular uh, holiday home uh, destination. Yes. And, uh, the, um, the, the, the gem in the County Louth Crown, go on, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a mm. lovely beachcombers cottage in Templeton and Carlingford. Uh, a three-bed, uh, really nice modern cottage there, mm. uh, 1200 for the week. So it's bigger, obviously, and a more popular area. So that would be commanding that price. Then I looked at Castle Bellingham in Loud, um, Dromina Cottages, uh, lovely stone renovated cottages. There's a series of, of those cottages there at €795 Euro mm. for a two-bed for a week. So good value there, yeah. you know, I oh, thought. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I, I'm looking at the preferred destinations of Kerry Galway and Donegal. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm just hoping that if you're doing any interviews with Radio Kerry or Galway Bay FM or Highland Radio <laughs> up in Donegal, that you <laughs> mention uh, those fabulous destinations and indeed the great value that there is <laughs> in Loud and Mead. I'll try my best, Michael. I'll try my best. Slip it in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Joanne. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, survey. Uh, I, I don't know how anybody is uh, affording to buy a house uh, uh, given uh, the cost of living and uh, indeed uh, th- that, that was very interesting from uh, the Bankers Federation the week before last wasn't it uh, that you want to be earning 90, 100,000 euro to uh, buy a house in Dublin these days. Yeah, I mean, look, I cer- certainly what you can see just on the on the housing market is that demand has actually remained still quite resilient. You know, supply has been the main issue in this marketplace, you know, um, and it has continued to be over the last number of years. So people would often ask me, you know, why are prices increasing or why are prices still so high? You know, pricing is still a factor of, you know, very constrained supply with very strong demand in this market. You know, the Bankers Federation figures were interesting because it shows that there's, you know, an affordability gap there between certainly what some earners can and how people can get on the ladder. And obviously, um, unfortunately, for a strong cohort of people that can't get on the ladder because they're not earning incomes at that level or they don't have the savings to, to get a mortgage. So, you know, it's the market is very dysfunctional still at the moment, and it's dysfunctional because of the lack of supply for all parts of the market. Okay. Um, and until the supply issue is resolved by government and, and private developers, you know, and funds and local councils and, you know, touching every part of um, the different markets, we're still going to be in a very dysfunctional property market, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that uh, appears to be the case. Thank you indeed, though, for joining us uh, today. Joanne Geary is uh, the Managing Director of MyHome.ie. We have a WhatsApp message uh, from someone who tells us uh, that uh, they were in Lanzarote, a week in Lanzarote, for €800. Can't get anything like that here. Uh, Some other comments coming to us. Paddy Duffy uh, says uh, the legacy bill going through the House of Lords at the moment is not for the purpose of saving the Paris 
the paratroopers who went into the bogside in Derry, but the people at the top who were responsible for sending them in there. That's uh, only one of many examples, says uh, Paddy. Betty Daly in touch with us about uh, peace and Good Friday and all... Uh, the things that we've been talking about today. She says, as long as Jeffrey Donaldson and his orange men are in there, there will never be peace. Not 100% in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Betty. I'm, I'm imagining uh, that that probably will always be the case. If you're right, there'll never be peace because uh, I think there probably will always be loyalists and unionists and uh, they will always have political representatives. How do we work with that, I suppose, then is the next big question. Uh, not one that I would ever feel qualified to answer. Let's hope, though, that uh, we do find some sort of reconciliation. If you want to make a comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Thanks to Betty and Paddy, by the way, for the text messages today. You can text or WhatsApp yourself. Our telephone or, or text number or WhatsApp number is 0861800658. That's 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. A lot of people are looking forward to, to the long weekend. Uh, a lot of people, that is, uh, apart uh, from people who work for the health services in this country, particularly people who work in hospitals. As you know, the new head of uh, the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, has asked people to work over the weekend, even though they're not rostered to work over the weekend because they'd be on a five-day roster. Uh, in other words, they work Monday to Friday, but he's asked them to work over the weekend because our hospitals uh, clog up over the weekend and we've seen it, I suppose, every Monday morning and every Tuesday morning after a, a long weekend that the numbers of people who can't get a bed in the hospital become outrageous at times. There was a time not so long ago that a, a thousand people were being treated on trolleys in emergency departments uh, across the country. Uh, So the hope is that people will heed the appeal of the CEO of the HSE and work this weekend, even though they're not scheduled to. Let's speak uh, to Colin Burke, who is a Fine Gael TD and member of uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee. And a very good morning to you, Colin Burke. I I take it that uh, the appeal is intended that... It will result in people working this weekend and the outcome will be that we'll manage to avoid that chaos of overrun emergency departments when we get around to Tuesday next week. Absolutely. I think it's important that, um, you know, it is organised that we get people out of hospital over the weekends and also to make sure that there are places available for people then if they have to come into hospital on Monday or Tuesday, I think that's extremely important that this is planned and that it's coordinated. Is it planned or is it coordinated for that matter? I heard the Minister for Health, uh, Stephen Donnelly, this morning talking about the appeal from Bernard Gloucester, the new CEO of the HSE, for staff to work over the weekend. The Minister was saying he doesn't know how many people are going to work. Yeah, but you see, it's not about the... Just a hospital issue. It's also about if you have a, a patient that you want to discharge to, say, um, a nursing home, about the coordination of that service. And that's one of the problems that you have over weekends as well. Um, it's making sure that the patient you're discharging um, will have 
uh, support and care that they require once they're discharged from hospital. And one of the problems that you have over weekends, it's not just about they think being discharged from hospital, but about having an appropriate setting to refer them into. Mm. And in a lot of cases, that doesn't happen, and that's why there's then a delay in getting people out of hospital at weekends. Well, the setting is <coughs> there. Uh, the nursing homes are, are there. The staff are working in the nursing homes. Yes, it's but the, the staff, staff are working, the hospitals. But the, but the coordinating, yes. uh, coordination of... Um, getting people out and getting them appropriate um, care mm. is not necessarily there over weekends. Because the community and healthcare workers are on a five-day roster. Well, it's not It's not just about community healthcare workers. This is about the admin side as regards the administration section, which is dealing with mm. you have a patient. The consultant says, look, this patient is fit to be going to a step-down yep. facility. Can you organise a step-down facility? Mm. It's a Friday evening and suddenly that step-down facility cannot be uh, or Because there isn't somebody there to there coordinate the admin the staff, because the admin, <coughs> uh, admin staff are, are rostered on a five-day basis. There's been no negotiation with them or their trade union representatives. Yeah, but there, there is one other issue that's arising as well with the HSE, which I'm finding a, a, a huge challenge. For instance, uh, I have a question into the Minister, would you believe, where I have someone inside the Simpsons Hospital for two and a half years. Mm could have been discharged over two years ago. Mm. The problem basically is that the nursing homes have assessed this patient. They deem that the person needs a higher standard of care than your normal nursing home setting. Um, A place has been identified which is a step down from a hospital but is a step up from a nursing home and it appears that there's no agreement with the HSE. So we have a bed occupied for the last two and a half years inside in St. Vincent's Hospital. So there's a need for coordination that where, and I had this problem down in Cork as well, where I had a number of patients in COH where they could be discharged but not to a nursing home setting. They needed a higher degree of care and the problem was that we, we had difficulty in getting the HSE to agree to pay over and above the the monies that would be paid under the fair deal scheme. Mm. And that was the problem. And, like, if you have that happening, and especially then at weekends, added to the additional complication where um, you have private nursing homes assessing, and they're saying, look, this person needs a, a far higher degree of care than what we can provide, um, therefore we're not able to take this patient then some places identified and then there seems to be a blockage within the admin section in the HSC about agreeing the um, additional funds that need to be provided to the nursing home to provide mm. the standard of care that person requires. Okay, that, that, that would help, no doubt. Um, but what we're talking about here uh, essentially is when people can't be discharged on a Friday evening, this evening, yes. this afternoon, uh, but perhaps they could be discharged tomorrow or on Sunday or, or on Monday. Uh, and, there, uh, and there is nobody there uh, to oversee that. Therein lies the problem, which will mean that the patients who could have been discharged on Saturday, on Sunday and on Monday will still be in their hospital bed on Tuesday when people arrive in the emergency department. There won't be a bed for them because they're being taken up by people who don't need to be in hospital. Absolutely, I agree with you. But we also have a situation, it's not necessarily just in the in the admin side, but we also have a, a situation in the hospital setting. I was recently speaking to a nurse who has moved from Ireland to the UK um, say you have a rota of five senior nurses to 15 junior nurses and that's the set uh, kind of um, scale every every day seven days a week 
we have a situation here in Ireland where one day you could have eight senior nurses and 12 junior nurses, and the next day you could have four senior nurses and 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 um, 16 junior nurses. And we need to do a lot more coordination about having an equal proportion of senior staff, whether it's administration, whether it's nursing, whether it's care assistance, on so that there is consistency throughout the seven days. So it's not just about having people available, it's also about having people with the expertise, uh, the experience and the expertise uh, in, in mm. available seven days a week in a set rota setting. And mm. I think that's something that we need to be working on as well. Okay. Uh, should we not have been working on it some time ago? I suppose the question is, what has been done about this? And are we not walking blindfoldedly into the chaos uh, that everybody would hope wouldn't be experienced by patients in hospital emergency departments again on Tuesday? Yeah, well, you see, the, it, it's extremely important that we have a sufficient number of staff that can make decisions, that can organise the discharge of mm. people. But, but we also, don't. I mean, this is the problem, this and is that the is problem, the question. Is, Why is that the case that we don't have them, uh, knowing that we're going to face this chaos again on Tuesday? Because we have, I suppose, gone down the road over a long number of years of having a setting of Monday to Friday where the main activity is in hospitals. On Saturday, we tend to deal with urgent uh, work. And then on Monday or Tuesday, we have a whole lot of people um, referred into hospital and we don't have a coordinated mm. effort. The, so Do you think the minister is on top of this, though? I, I mean, it's not, it's not a, just about the minister. This is about administration uh, down am, along the line. Yeah. The minister can give a direction, but it's about the implementation of uh, that yeah, direction. But the, the minister um, should have a better handle on it, shouldn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, when you think about this, we, it's not that long ago since we had a, a thousand people on, on trolleys, and we hope that won't be the case again on Tuesday. But and with the good weather and all of that... I'll w- give you the figures in relation to the hospitals. Last year, there was 3.5 million people attended outpatients, yeah. okay? There was 1.7 million when people went through the hospital setting, yeah. either were physically in hospital or were in for daycare procedures. Mm. There was another 1.6 million attendances in accident emergency departments. What we need to be doing is trying to get down the figure attending accident emergency. For instance, in Cork, we have one of the clinics we have is a minor mm. interest clinic. So if you sprained or uh, if you have a sprained ankle or you have a minor injury, mm. you go to this clinic. And it's a fantastic clinic. It's working extremely well. Um, you're in and out of it within two hours on average. Mm. And therefore, you're not waiting. Mm. Accident oh, I know. And we've and a similar we unit up in Dundalk and it really is fantastic. Instead and of waiting. it's that kind of thing yeah. that we need to do. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's fantastic. A lot of people don't know uh, that they could go there and spend hours, we, if not days, waiting in uh, the other hospital in the Lourdes. We also need to have uh, more, uh, and this is one of the things that we're doing in recruitment, say, for instance, of GPs. Um, we're increasing the number of GP trainees from 258 to 350. Um, we're also introducing a system whereby non-EU uh, uh, doctors who have experience of working as in general practice can go on a, a two-year course and will be qualified within two years. We've, uh, we're talking about increasing that from, I think that's going to be increased from 50 to 250. Mm. So if you have more GPs available, then 
you've more access and okay. and that's one of the problems. When, that. If and when that happens, but I'm talking about Tuesday, Colin. I, I mean, yes. uh, we, it's not that long ago. Just going back to the point uh, as to whether the Minister should have a, a better handle on this, if he should be on top of it, because it's not that long ago since we had a, a thousand people on trolleys. Going into this long weekend, the head of the HSE has appealed to staff to work over the weekend so that we don't have a similar situation on Tuesday. The Minister says today he doesn't know what the situation is. Is that good enough? Well, in fairness to Bernard Loster, head of the HSE, one of the things that we have to remember at any weekend in every hospital, there's a set number of people working. The question is about making sure that it's not just the people in the hospital working, but the administration side is also working. But they're the people he's appealing to to work over this weekend. This morning, the Minister for Health doesn't know if people have responded to that uh, appeal and put themselves forward available for work? Well, I would accept that the Minister probably doesn't know because we've, and you know, there's a huge number of medical units around the country. It's not possible to get a feedback from each and every one of them. But that's one of the things that you won't start out overnight, but it's something that we need to put in place, a planned programme. And one of the other things, Michael, remember now we have huge challenges coming down the road over the next seven years. Remember, we have over... Um, at the moment, we have 775,000 people over 65 in this country. It's growing at a phenomenal rate. It's gone up quite, I think it's probably about 600,000 to 775,000 in a short period of time. Within seven years, that figure is going to go to a million. And the issue about that is that there is then people are living longer, but there's also a higher degree of care required in relation to as we all get older. Um, and, you know, if you go into any hospital, okay. 50% yeah. of the people in hospital at any one time are over 65 okay, years Okay, but age. what I'm hearing you say... Therefore, what, what the next seven years is that there's going to be huge growth in demand. Hmm. Therefore, we've got to plan for that. Uh, and that's well established. Uh, I mean, um, people are looking at uh, the population all of uh, the time and how it'll grow and how it'll age and so on. But what I'm hearing you say, or how I'm interpreting what you're saying to mean is that this is the best that we can do under the circumstances. No, there's I'm going to be chaos on Tuesday because uh, we're still working on these things and people are getting older. Yeah, what I'm saying is that we, the burnt loss is correct. We need, and you know, you take, say for instance, you take the, the best example of all is maternity. Maternity has always operated a full seven days a week because babies don't arrive between nine and five, Monday to Friday. Therefore, the maternity services have operated seven days a week, 24 hours a day um, for, uh, you know, since since medicine started in this country, since hospitals started. We, we, we've now got to move a whole lot of other areas into making sure that we can provide a full seven-day service from admission to discharge to the coordination of the discharge to the coordination of having... Um, uh, you know, the appropriate level of care available for the person who is discharged. And can I just say, Michael, I just want to go back on the yeah. other issue mm-hmm. about at any one time now, at any one time now, we have over 500 people in hospital who should have been discharged. And we need to work out why is there such a delay? I had, as I said, mm-hmm. I had a number of cases where people were in hospital for a lot longer than what they should have been because the coordination of discharge wasn't being done in the best way possible. And I think we need to look at that issue because remember someone in a hospital bed is, it, the cost of running a hospital bed is around 7,500 euros 
per bed per week. Mm-hmm. In a nursing home setting, it's somewhere between um, a thousand euros to eighteen hundred euros per per bed per week. We need to make sure that the step down facilities are available at any time of the week and that we can make sure that we can get people out of hospital um, at the earliest possible date once they've gone through the, the care that they require in the hospital setting. OK, we'll leave it there and thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us this You're morning. You're very welcome. Thank you. Colin Burke is Finnegale's spokesperson on health. Some comments coming to us uh, today. Susan and Touch saying that hotels are missing a trick by not running better package deals. Most people would be happy to holiday at home if uh, they were getting value for money, but the simple truth is we don't get value for money. Here, hotels are upping their prices, then restaurants do the same in popular tourist areas. Uh, And Susan says she was hoping to have a staycation uh, this year, but she finds it just too expensive, so she's hoping to book a, a long weekend away abroad for a fraction of the price that she has been quoted here. Mary thinks hotels do themselves no favours when it comes to enticing customers. They're pricing themselves out of the market and out of people's spending range. Uh, the price in some places are eye-watering. Mary says she doesn't blame people if they head abroad. It's better value. Joe called to say €1,200 Euro a week for a house in Carlingford. Lovely and all as Carlingford is. That is a ridiculous amount of money to pay to stay local. He says you could get a fortnight abroad for that money and be guaranteed sunshine. Joe, you may be interested in what Connor has to say. He says my family group are heading to Lanzarote at the end of June for 12 12 nights, a reasonably nice villa, close to everything, Aer Lingus flights, transport, all organised by ourselves, €800 Euro per person. Far cheaper to go abroad, but also spend little and often at home. Thank you, Connor. Uh, listener in Navin says, it's arrogance on behalf of the HSC to be asking people who are overworked and tired to work over the weekend. If they were doing their job properly, there would be no need to ask people to work weekends. Also, they need to pay medical staff proper wages. That's from a Navin listener. And thank you for making your comment on the programme today. Uh, as always, if you want to make comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email Michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I want to revisit the issue of the disaster that is public liability insurance. We are hearing that the likes of Beyonce and Coldplay are going to skip Ireland because of this insurance disaster. Look, we know the damage that's been done. We know the danger for uh, anybody involved in adventure tourism businesses. We know the issue for community centres, community organisations. We all know we need to see that duty of care legislation. Again, can I have a timeline on when that will be true to Shannon? And then beyond that, uh, when it will actually be enacted. We know the IDA has to attract more players in. But how do we make sure that the savings that are happening for insurers are being passed on to um, to consumers and to businesses. We know the personal injury guidelines, we need the reduced amounts of claims are having an impact for them, but we need them to happen for businesses and consumers. I'm tempted to say that maybe we should be thankful for small mercies if Beyonce and Coldplay can't afford insurance here and it stops them from performing here Uh, but it's far too serious it gets even more serious than that Uh, you know that the European Juggling Convention was to be held in Gormanston because we've talked about it uh, before Uh, but they cancelled because they just couldn't get a quote 
Uh, now they've moved uh, the event to Poland where they're getting insurance for €5,000. It's our loss. Uh, Board Falcha and uh, the Arts Council campaigned to bring that event to Ireland. It was decided to do that. Gormanston was to be the uh, venue. Uh, and the Irish Times reported last week uh, that uh, when this last happened here, it resulted in a €5 million euro boost for the local economy. In that context, €5,000 seems like pittance in terms of insurance. Anyway, let's talk to Peter Boland, Director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. A very good morning to you, Peter. All of this comes as no surprise to you. You're blue in the face talking about it. But it really is shooting ourselves in the foot, isn't it? Entirely, Michael, and uh, like we've been maintaining, uh, and you and I have discussed this on many occasions, that what we're talking about is damage to the fabric of our society. You, you may not like Beyonce uh, or Coldplay, but there are many other acts that are uh, making that decision because Ireland is just too expensive. And it, that's a competitive market in terms of global music tours uh, and there are plenty others alike and the, the, the one that strikes me most at the moment is uh, anything to do with tourism and hospitality obviously we're compared uh, when visitors are deciding where to go and Ireland is uh, way more expensive than even Northern Ireland Northern Ireland is probably the market closest to our own in terms of the way that insurance and personal injury claims are managed mm. uh, and yet uh, operators in the north pay a fraction of what we pay in the Republic. And the damage is right across the board. So it, it's not just hospitality and tourism or cultural and artistic. Uh, it's many SMEs right across the range and then into volunteering community groups, charities, sports organisations. Mm. And this is not sustainable. And anyway, it doesn't matter whether I like Beyonce or, or Coldplay. If people come to watch those gigs, uh, they'll also uh, need somewhere to stay. They'll go for a meal. Uh, they'll buy something else perhaps while they're here and uh, they'll pay VAT on that. That'll go to the exchequer and to the economy uh, is all the better for it all. Uh, and it, it is sort of basic stuff. I mean, this is what you do in a country. You put on events uh, and I suppose getting the right event that will attract people should be the biggest challenge, not affording the uh, cost of insurance. Absolutely. And like time after time, we hear from representative bodies in Europe that they just cannot get over the fact that we're preoccupied with insurance. Uh, in every other country in Europe, it's just another bill, uh, like getting your waste taken away or your energy bills or whatever else you need to pay, and you pay it and you move on. And uh, it is Ireland is an absolute outlier in this respect. Now, having said that, we know how to fix it. Uh, and uh, the bulk of what needs to be done has been done. Uh, Deputy Amoriku in that clip uh, mentioned the duty of care legislation, which will have a very positive impact on uh, festivals, music events and other arts and cultural activities. Uh, because essentially what that's doing is saying to people who go to an event or onto a premises, Look, you have to look after your own safety as well. You also have a responsibility. And so if something happens and it's your fault, then you bear that responsibility, not uh, the premises that you happened to be on at the time. So that's very positive that that legislation is on its way. We expect that to be commenced uh, sometime in the autumn, uh, ideally faster if that can be the case. 
but then all the pieces are in place and yes we're not seeing the premiums come down and essentially what we now have is an insurance industry who have reaped all the benefits of this and are putting them in their back pocket Yeah it was remiss of me not to mention that it was Rory Marku local Sinn Féin TD in Loud and East Meath uh, thanks uh, for that uh, but uh, when it comes to that <coughs> excuse me um, <coughs> excuse me Peter uh, when it comes to that duty of care uh, I think the first time uh, I, I heard of there being a question about what should be common sense was to do with somebody suing a, a restaurant in America because they burnt themselves with hot tea and it didn't say that the tea was hot on, on the cup. Uh, but we're as bad, if not worse now, are we not? We are. And there, there have been many cases in recent years of, of people uh, being injured, being genuinely injured, but due to the most basic uh, things where they really weren't looking after their own safety. And there has been, well, the legislation up to now is reasonably well balanced. Its interpretation in the courts has been thrown out the window. And effectively, if you have a premises and you have insurance, if something happens on those premises, then you are liable. And and mm. that is not just, it's not fair, uh, and it's not sustainable. Um, because clearly anyone who deals with the public now lives in fear of someone hurting themselves. And I recently saw CCTV mm. uh, of, of a, a pending claim uh, where someone was walking backwards down the stairs in a shop talking to their children and <laughs> uh, inevitably fell over. Mm. Uh, and now they're making a claim. And now that claim may or may not uh, make it through the courts, but the fact that it was made at all is a reflection of just how crazy the situation is right now. And needless to say, even if it does get thrown out, uh, the defendant will incur significant costs and it will impact uh, their insurance premium for two to five years. So... We spoke about juggling before, Peter, uh, and uh, I mean, uh, I really don't know much uh, uh, about juggling uh, or the European Juggling Convention, uh, but it is a terrible loss to the local economy uh, that €5 billion Euro, uh, would have been spent locally like that, going to the hotel and the restaurant and whatever. Um, but uh, we were talking about it, it yesterday, uh, and we are saying, sure, what's the danger in juggling? Uh, and then, uh, Maggie, we were talking about it uh, uh, when we were preparing for today's programme, looking at uh, this is a story. Maggie was saying, well, I suppose there be, could, could be juggling chainsaws. Uh, it's common sense. If you're juggling chainsaws, I don't know if they do that, but you know, it's just as an example. I mean, it's obviously a very dangerous thing to do. And you have to uh, accept, if you're going to do something like that, uh, that there's some personal liability. Absolutely. And uh, built into the legislation is uh, a clause for the first time in Ireland on the voluntary assumption of risk. So if the normal uh, average human being uh, would be aware that there's a risk associated with an activity, uh, then it has to be assumed that you're taking on that risk when you engage in it. Um, so that would apply to adventure sports or sports in general or any other potentially risky behaviour. But here's the kicker on this, Michael. Uh, to a certain extent, because of this crisis, Ireland is one of the safest countries in Europe by any metric. Uh, to the extent that Irish operators of, of any organisation or event are afraid to take risks at this stage. And so 
what's the point in having adventure sport if there's no adventure or in having a play centre for kids where risky play isn't allowed it is globally recognised that kids must engage in risky play in order to learn about themselves and the world around them yeah. uh, and what we've seen and, and if they fall if they fall they might break their leg uh, but that shouldn't result in a claim for 15 or 20,000 euro well, precisely, and yep. mm. look at it. it, it what, it, what it has led to a situation is that kids are growing up wrapped in bubble wrap, uh, and there are major downstream implications for that. So, look, at this needs to be fixed quickly. Uh, we know how to fix it. Government must apply intense pressure on insurers to deliver reductions on the back of what they've already got. Mm. The fact that they aren't is a reflection of the fact that there's not enough competition in the market. Government have committed to getting competition in. It hasn't happened, and it needs to happen urgently. And finally, what we're seeing is sectors who simply cannot get cover anymore. So insurers are in a position where they can pick and choose, and they are discarding smaller, less profitable sectors. Uh, And government are going to have to figure out a fix on that. the small sectors that simply cannot get covered and I know you've covered for example Bouncy Castles before Mm, and there's many of them in that Mm. position right now so do we want them to close and go away or do we want them to survive and thrive and government will have to make that decision ultimately Peter thank you indeed for joining us this morning Peter Boland uh, the Director of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, whatever about going away this weekend, there is no doubt a lot of people will be at home, but travelling in the country. And AA Ireland is appealing to all of us to be safe on the roads. Blake Boland, communications officer for AA Ireland, joins us in studio. And good morning to you and thank you indeed. Uh, There'll be a lot of traffic out there and we're all facing the same problems. None of us should be surprised that the roads are going to be packed this weekend. I think that's probably the starting point, is it? That's right, yeah. And with the good weather as well, a lot of people might be making a dash out of Dublin or out of Cork City Mm. to make their way to a holiday home. So we're expecting the roads to be busy as well. And we're just appealing to people to be as safe as you can. We're seeing road deaths, unfortunately, increasing the last couple of years. I checked the statistics before I came in this morning. So as of 9am this morning, we've had 77 deaths, unfortunately, on Irish roads. And that's up on 13 from last year and up on 18 from the year before that mm. so it's that's so 77 important. people uh, who are no longer with us yeah. F- five of those people lost their lives in County Loud on the roads last month that's right mm. yeah, and yeah. Only, only within the last week we've, we've had a couple of, of terrible horrific accidents and, and just to, to move on from that as well mm. we, we talk a lot about road deaths there's a huge amount of road injuries out there as well mm. so a lot of people who are possibly losing a limb or are suffering chronic pain for decades afterwards yeah. it's uh, it's not just people that are dying brain damage death paraplegic I mean some yes. of the stories uh, are, are just incredible and you never hear about them you hear that there was an accident and that's the end of it in terms of what it is uh, broadcast on the news or reported in the news. That's right, yeah. So if we can get people to to slow down, be a lot more safe on the roads, we can cut down on the deaths, of course, but also on on Mm. some of those injuries. So we're really appealing to people as we approach the bank holiday to take care. A lot of it is common sense or should be common sense to qualified drivers. Do the things that you've been trained to do and do the things that you know you're supposed to do. We all know we shouldn't be on the phone, we should be wearing seatbelts, we shouldn't be speeding, etc, etc. 
Yeah, that's that's right. A lot of it is is common sense. But unfortunately, life seems to take a different twist for people. So you might leave a little bit late or you get frustrated by a driver who's too fast or too slow beside you or who's driving too close to you behind. So, mm. um, you know, perhaps the kids are in the back, back of the car. They're making a little bit of a fuss because they drop their toy and you get distracted for a moment. So so life um, it throws up these little things. And yeah. we just have to remember that the, the overarching thing here is to cut down on those debts and just mm. just take care. Yeah, and there will be slow drivers. There'll be tractors. There'll be bicycles. There will be. Yeah, that's the mm. other thing as well. We we talk about you know fatalities on the road, but I was just looking at the statistics then again this morning, and so many of them are actually pedestrians, or um, or cyclists as well. So mm. it's you know it's just under a half of the road deaths are are, are the drivers or the, the passengers, but there's a lot of other ones. Motorcyclists yeah. as well have suffered mm. ten of those seventy seven. Mm. Yeah, we're all asked uh, with bicycles uh, to leave a, a metre between the car and the bicycle in the towns, a metre a half outside of the towns. Uh, you're asking all uh, road users to be safe. Uh, it should work two ways, shouldn't it? And bicycles should try their best to be a metre and a half away from cars. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. some of them who are really just dog-headed and will sit out in the middle of the road. Um, that is right. Um, a lot of cyclists, though, it's necessary that they take a defensive position on the road. If, if they move in too tight to the side, it creates a gap that in reality is not there, but some drivers mm. think is there. Uh, we oh, all but it is there sometimes. I mean, this is the point because you know it's there because somebody is in the place that they could move into if they went behind that person or behind the other person, because sometimes they're three and four abreast. They are, yeah, but some mm. of the advice is actually is that cycling two abreast can be the safe thing to do. Oh. And the idea mm. is that if you can't overcycle, overtake two cyclists, then there wasn't enough space to overtake one anyway because of oncoming traffic or cars around. Mm. But you're absolutely, just to go back to the point that you started off with, mm. it's a two-way street, really is, pardon the pun, but we all need to look after each other. And cyclists, you know, a small pothole that means nothing to, to the person driving a car mm. is a big thing for a cyclist. And they may, may need to make last-minute manoeuvres and just take up that extra foot or two foot so they can get around those potholes. So we have to consider everybody and consider each other, of course. Mm. Uh, and we talk about statistics, uh, but behind the statistics, uh, obviously, are people, as we've already said. Uh, but it's not just the risk of losing your life on the roads this weekend. It's the risk of someone else losing their life as a result of your driving, as the case may be. Uh, and uh, I think the obvious thing that comes to mind there is that if you're impaired in any way, uh, if you've been drinking or taking drugs and deciding to drive afterwards. Absolutely. It's just you should never, ever consume alcohol or take drugs, as you've, you've alluded to there, if you're going to be driving the car. I mean, just don't do it. Can we get a designated driver? Can you organise a taxi for the way home? Depends on where you're going. Can you take a train or a bus or mm. possibly? walk. And another part of that as well that a lot of people do forget is they go out they have a few pints or a few glasses of wine at home they wake up the next morning yeah. and they get back in their car and that alcohol mm. or those drugs have not left your system yet. Yeah. So it's so great, great weekend driving home on Tuesday, bit under the weather. Yeah, are, are, you, are you under the influence? Yeah, and, and you know mm. a lot of people are and you, you might go for a nice weekend and mm. you've, you've had a lovely time let's say in the sunshine and Dingle and you have a trip back up to Drogheda and you're getting up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning the alcohol's still in your system you're very tired as well which is another factor that really impairs driving 
So really pay okay. attention to that. Yeah. Just think about it. Is my cutoff point now at 11 o'clock? Will the alcohol be out of my system by the time I leave? Mm. And just really make sure of that. Okay, Blake, good to see you. Hope you have a, a, a good weekend and a safe weekend, uh, uh, as I uh, do everybody listening to us uh, this morning. And thanks for coming in to us. Uh, Blake Boland, Communications Officer with AA Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.